0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day, exactly one day after the men's final of the NCAA tournament. So I am here today with hashtag basketball draft expert and my co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing after an incredibly exciting end to March Madness?
1: Oh, man, that was so anticlimactic. I, I, We... we, we... We deserved a better game than we got, and it was the game we all wanted, we just didn't get it. Uh, Baylor just came out with a flamethrower, and Justin couldn't answer. It sucked, but hey, turns out Baylor was actually as good as we thought they were all season two.
0: Yeah, it turns out they ended up being a pretty good basketball team, but let's start with one of the players who was on the receiving end of that flamethrower, Jalen Suggs had by far the best game of any Gonzaga player in the national championship game, but the memory of Jalen Suggs that is going to stand out from this tournament was the Gonzaga-UCLA game in the Final Four, where... Jalen Suggs, right at the end of regulation, had a block into a three-quarters court bounce pass for a Drew Timmy dunk that managed to not be the highlight of his night because, of course, he also managed to bank in a 35-foot buzzer beater to beat UCLA. What a game. What a game from Jalen Suggs. And, you know, he had a solid game in the national title game as well after his couple of early fouls, but... I had Suggs as the number two prospect in this class going into the tournament, and I try my very best to not be someone who is swayed too heavily by tournament games, but that sort of fuzzy number two that I had him at before the start of the tournament, he's now the clear number two prospect in this class in my mind.
1: So I, I agree with you with the recency bias and you know, not wanting to be persuaded one way or the other um and I I came in with Mobley as my number two and Mobley didn't really do anything to dissuade me from thinking that um but I just every time you watch Suggs play it's impossible not to fall in love with this kid and I, I know it sounds tacky and cliche but his intangibles are just incredible that toughness that leadership that passion that work rate that work ethic you know it's just he's one of these guys that could really be a culture setter for an nba team and you know teams picking in the top of the lottery are generally really crappy franchises and they need those guys to come in and and set that winning mentality that and have that tenacity and that i don't care like who we're playing we're gonna give it everything every night and we're gonna go out there and win and every night Jalen Suggs you know he he brings that on a nightly basis and even you know we saw that in the national championship game where he you know in the second half he had that layup uh, and got fouled and he's screaming to the crowd he's trying to get his teammates pumped up just no one else on that team was able to kind of step up like he did in that game.
0: I mean, Baylor ended up winning by 16 points and it wasn't particularly close throughout the night. But I mean, after Jalen Suggs got those two early fouls, the team could have easily just rolled over and it could have been, you know, more like the Baylor Houston game in the final four, where I think it was 60 to 24 at halftime or something like that. But Jalen Suggs just did not give up. And, you know, I don't want to say anyone on the Gonzaga team gave up. They were just facing an incredible opponent and didn't play as well as they did. But, you know, that sort of intangibles and the mentality of it really showed through for Suggs in a game where, you know, he could have just said, "Okay, I've secured my spot as a top pick in the NBA draft and everybody is going to remember my buzzer beater in the previous game and people are going to look at me as a college basketball god no matter what happens in this game. You know, I could just not try as hard and maybe, you know, sit on the bench for as long as the coach will let me to, you know, avoid injury or anything like that. And it was the exact opposite. He was playing with fire for every single second that he was on the court in a game that looked like it was out of hand early and certainly would have been more out of hand if Jalen did not show up in the second half in the way that he did.
1: And just like when thinking about guys at the top of the draft, you know, I, I, So, like one of the tiebreakers I like to use with guys is, will I regret passing on this guy? And and he, (laughs) every game you watch of him, it's the more and more it's I want that guy on my team. I want my fans rooting for that kid. I want this kid leading my franchise. Like I want him to be the face of my franchise. So and I, I know they lost. I know you know they were so close to that undefeated historic season and it slipped away, but what he did for him for his draft stock uh throughout the entire season because he wasn't a surefire top you know three maybe five guy in in this draft entering the season what he did throughout the season and in the tournament um is is really incredible and just shows how valuable you know that the, the, those intangibles and that passion and that desire to be great, how how important all of that can be.
0: And you mentioned sort of the will I regret passing on this guy kind of test. And if you look back at the top part of the draft for the last three years, right, the teams that are saying I really regret passing on this guy, pretty much exclusively, and you know, not to sort of rehash this point, but pretty much exclusively they're the teams that took big men, right? I mean, there are a lot of Warriors fans that are very upset about the James Wiseman pick, which they should give him a lot more time to develop.
1: Yeah, that, that that's way too early. It's
0: way too early, but, you know, go back a couple more years, right? DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley at the top of that draft looks pretty poor yep. when you've got Luka Doncic doing Luka Doncic things. And if I were an NBA GM, I would regret passing on Jalen Suggs a lot more than I would regret passing on Evan Mobley. Because Mobley, it's like, okay, you know what, the last few years there were these elite big men at the top and they weren't as good as we thought they were and Mobley broke the mold Anthony Davis style okay that's sort of what it is but if Jalen Suggs is an all-star all-NBA guy in like three or four years I guarantee you that unless the team that picked number two gets Evan Mobley to be an all-NBA guy I guarantee you they're gonna regret passing on the lead playmaker who plays like he's on fire every single game
1: yeah and, and it's one of those picks that could lose your lose you your job and you know, th- th- this isn't to say anything negative about Evan Mobley because I I still absolutely adore him as a prospect. But when I'm looking at that face of a franchise type guy, I you know I in roster construction, I I think it's easier to kind of piece together the center position um, than it is to get one of those franchise-changing perimeter players. And I-, I really think Suggs could end up being that. Um, you know, and the, 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 again, this isn't to say anything, you know, downgrading Mobley based on anything he did, because he had an awesome tournament as well. I just, when, when it comes to value and where the league is headed, I know big men are still prominent and, you know, most of the, there are a few of the top MVP guys right now are centers, but when it comes to building that team, I i I find it hard to pass up a guy with those intangibles and just his actual on-court production, which is also phenomenal. So it's really going to be hard for me to lock into one of those guys at number two.
0: From Jalen Suggs to his opponents in that epic Final Four game that was one of the best men's tournament games that we've seen in a very long time. But Johnny Juzang and Jaime Jaquez sort of stood out for UCLA throughout this tournament. Jaquez, I think, is probably likely to go back to UCLA. He might have a much better chance at getting drafted high next year as opposed to this year. But Juzang, I think, probably earned himself a first-round grade after his run in the tournament. I'm not sure I personally would take him in the first round, but, I mean, he shot... 59% on two pointers for UCLA during the tournament. And if you watched it, it was a lot of mid range jumpers and turnarounds and really, really difficult shots that he was just pouring in. And he's always sort of had that three point shot. I mean, he was supposed to be the sharpshooter in his first year at Kentucky. That did not work out particularly well, but it certainly has worked out for him well at UCLA. And I would be surprised if he does not throw his name into the draft for this year because after that tournament run, I would be surprised if he falls past the thirtieth pick.
1: Yeah, I, I would be stunned if if he comes back next year. Um, I I liked him a lot at Kentucky, but he just couldn't get any run. That wasn't a problem at UCLA. Yeah, and but I'm, the what what he I okay so the recency bias with Ju saying has gotten out of control as well yes, he had an awesome tournament. People saying that he should be a lottery pick now are out of their
0: minds. Him and Buddy Beheim going with the last two picks in the lottery is going to be really interesting.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. And, and and those teams will be right back in the lottery next year, too. Um, I, I like Zhang. He's a really, really, really talented shot maker. Uh, his outside his three-pointer is just kind of okay, uh. but he's really comfortable shooting off the dribble, great size for a shooter, Uh, really, essentially, una- completely unaffected uh, by shot contests. I'm just not sure what else he does. His size will kind of bail him out and make him a little, you know, quote-unquote, versatile defensively, but he's not much of a playmaker. He moves well without the ball. Uh, he won't be a defensive stopper. I currently have him in the 50s, and a lot of that is because, I, you know, these guys should be graded on more than just a five-game tournament run. Was his five-game tournament run incredible? Absolutely. He carried that team. Without him, they, you know, they're probably not getting past Michigan State in the playing game. But he was also a pretty inconsistent shooter throughout the season, in the regular season. And I, I, I struggled to buy into putting a first-round grade on a guy who, yes, he's incredibly talented. When he gets hot, you know, there are a few better shooters than him in the country. But, you know, that, that keyword of win is, you know, it's not always there. And a lot of nights, it's not there at all.
0: It's funny that throughout the tournament, there was all this talk of how UCLA lost their four games going into the tournament. Nobody's really going to focus on those games. And, you know, the fact that, again, they were an 11th seed that were in the first four and had lost their four previous games heading into the tournament. You know, obviously they couldn't have flipped that because you can't lose four consecutive games and stay in the tournament. But if they'd been red hot, you know, heading into the tournament and ended up, I don't know, as like a sixth seed and got upset in the opening round. I guarantee you nobody's talking about Johnny Juzang as a first round pick, much less a lottery pick. I think I wouldn't be too upset if the right team took him in the late 20s. But I mean, that's sort of what we're looking at here, right? It's like if he goes to the right team where he can just be a microwave scorer type and know he's going to get like, 15 minutes a game off the bench to just try and light it up and not really care all that much about other things, you know, I think he could be a really effective NBA player. And I would be surprised but not entirely shocked if five years from now he's in the conversation for a six-man-of-the-year award. But if you're taking him in the lottery and, like, that's sort of the ceiling that I can really think of for him at the NBA level, that's kind of a wasted pick.
1: Yeah, and I mean... (sighs) Fifteen of his twenty-seven games this season, he scored less than fifteen points. So, on the right night, he can be that electric electric scorer. And I I definitely think that there is a spot in the NBA for him eventually. I'm just not sure it's right now. And I don't think I would use a first-round pick on a guy who's has that such wide a variance, and I definitely wouldn't be expecting to get the guy who showed up against Michigan and Gonzaga, because I I think those performances are closer to, you know, sure, they're repeatable, but I think they're closer to being outliers than the norm.
0: So now let's talk about some of the Gonzaga guys that we did not talk about earlier. Corey Kispert had a pretty terrible national championship game but he's probably still lottery-ish pick but i wanted to talk more about joel Ayayi and drew timmy jalen suggs is going to be the name that people remember from that gonzaga ucla game but they would not have won that game without joel Ayayi having an absolutely incredible night he ended up with 22 points on just 12 shots and He's been sort of the lead defender, lead guard defender for Gonzaga basically the entire season. So Ayai is probably someone who's going to go middle of the second round. And if I had to pick between him or Juzang at the end of the first round, I think I would probably go with Ayai. And I don't think that's going to be a popular sentiment right about now, even though Ayai had an excellent game as well as Juzang in that Final Four contest.
1: So I tend to agree with you on that, and I've had IAE in like my top 45 essentially all season. Um, he He's not the shooter that Juzang is, but he does a little bit of everything else at a really high level. He's kind of that perfect utility guard that you can just bring in off the bench to fill whatever role. If your point guard gets hurt, he can fill in there. If your off-ball guard, your shooting guard uh, gets in foul trouble, he can fill in there and... You know he's really smart with his off-ball movement, uh, and really, really, really good rebounder for his position. Uh, just a really smart player, and and he had the game of his life against UCLA, and no one noticed because Jalen Suggs made the two most impressive plays of the season in that game. But his, his, just his overall feel for the game, his maturity, his the cerebral aspects to his game are incredibly impressive, and I would I would be absolutely stunned if he's not one of these guys we see, um, you know, as the 6th, 7th, 8th man in a rotation on contending teams.
0: He almost feels like he's destined to be the 5th starter for a conference finalist. Yeah. Like, just, you know, the... Absolute fill-in-the-blanks kind of starting player, a la Keith Bogans, but you know, I think unlike Keith Bogans, a I might have a chance to play more than the first six minutes of each half. I mean, he just fills so many gaps for a team. And, you know, maybe that doesn't stand out as much if you're on a terrible team and there are way too many gaps to fill, but like you put him on, I don't know, say the Lakers, right? And I think he does a lot better job in that role than Contavious Caldwell-Pope. And that's not even, you know, a knock against KCP. It's just that I think AI really has the perfect mix to be the ultimate sort of complimentary starter.
1: Yeah, it, it's almost like he'll, you know, this isn't a comp for play style necessarily, but almost like a George Hill uh, future where he's not qu- quite good enough to be, you know, that that lead initiator, but every contender is going to want him on their team because he can help take, you know, elevate their, their starting unit or really be a leader on that second unit.
0: And then I also wanted to, before we go into the Baylor guys, just talk quickly about Drew Timmy. He is someone who I think would have been a first round pick like 15, 20 years ago. Obviously, it's not going to be close to that now, but it certainly seems like he was someone who might not have gotten drafted before this tournament run. And after this tournament run, I would be surprised if someone in the 50s doesn't at least take a flyer on him. I mean, he could be a really, really annoying player for like five minutes a game. And the question is just going to be, is he an annoying player for five minutes a game in the NBA? Or does he go over to Europe and become a really solid player who you know isn't quite at that nba level i don't know it'll be interesting to see i guess i mean i
1: i don't think we can rule out him going back to gonzaga because i believe he's only a sophomore which is wild Um, yeah that doesn't sound right at all
0: (laughs) um
1: i i i don't have him as an nba guy right now i i don't think he's big enough to really put to be like that that main rim protector that teams will have to rely on and he can't stretch the floor really at all as far as basketball iq his is off the charts really smart passer um and his post footwork is which is one of my favorite things to watch this season i know that's lame but i and i know i know young kids always want to just stretch their game out and shoot a bunch of threes and dunk now but I think watching how Timmy maneuvers in the post is kind of a lost art, and I think it's really, really impressive. And that that same footwork he has on the offensive end carries over. On defense, I I just don't think he has the the shooting or the athleticism to really be – an NBA center, at least right now.
0: Well, you know who definitely does have the shooting and the athleticism to be maybe not a center, but certainly an NBA player. Let's move on to the Baylor guys. After all, they were, in fact, the team that ended up winning the national championship. And the place to start there is Davion Mitchell. You and I have both been fans of Davion Mitchell's for quite a while now. And I saw earlier today that Mike Schmitz was saying that he might be a top 10 player in this draft, where seeing as, you know, he was someone that was towards the end of the first round for most of the year, that's certainly a leap. But I mean, I think he would still be one of the better picks in the back half of the lottery. Maybe, you know, in the top seven would be pushing it a bit too high. But I think he's going to be a very successful NBA player. I mean, all of his peripherals and advanced stats look spectacular. And, you know, moving beyond that, you know, he's clearly got the athleticism to be a top tier NBA point guard. You know, I don't think he's really an all-star type, but then again, I mean, I didn't think Demonis Sabonis was an all-star type. And, you know, that's obviously a very different sort of player, but... I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that he's clearly proven that he's a very successful basketball player. And I kind of don't want to put too high of a ceiling on him, especially, you know, after he was one of the leading factors in taking this Baylor team to a national title.
1: So I promise this isn't recency bias because I, I had Davion in my lottery pre tournament when my first top 45 of the draft guy dropped and in the second draft coming soon uh he'll be number nine and i don't really have any hesitation about putting him top 10 there's nothing about his game that really concerns me um i've seen people say he's too small to play in the nba
0: yeah okay sure
1: based on his height and weight you know it's in the same ballpark as donovan mitchell pat beverly and drew holiday um you know i'm just going off their listed heights i don't know how they're measured shoes no shoes whatever their listed measurements are similar um he has the quickest first step in the country he's a pretty good at rim finisher by avoiding contact uh he doesn't really care about just leaving it all out there and crashing to the floor. Uh, I think his shooting improvements with his three-point percentage jumping about 13% since last year, I think that's legitimate. And he's doing it off the catch. He's doing it on the move. He's doing it off the bounce. You know, he's hitting step backs. He's hitting crossover pull-ups. He's dribbling off screens and pulling up. So even though the free throw percentage is still in like the mid 60s which isn't great not what you want from your guard i still think that his three point shooting will translate i think he's probably the best point of attack defender in this class and one of the better ones in recent years his instincts his footwork are incredible he led the big 12 in assists this year so he's not that flashy elite playmaker but he's a good passer so i don't really care about his age and I just think he's a good ball player and he's going to be really good in the NBA.
0: Yeah. The age thing, you know, there's a certain point at which, yes, you're going to have a lot more developmental opportunity with a 19 year old versus a 22 year old. Agreed. But the flip side of that is if you take a total project who's 19 years old, you know, you get four years and then restricted free agency, right? If they have a really difficult first three years as they're learning the game, you know, that's three years that you've sort of lost in development time. With Davion Mitchell, I would be surprised if by the start of his second year, because rookie years are always tough for point guards, but I would be shocked if Davion Mitchell is not positively contributing to his team. If not by the end of his rookie year, then certainly by the beginning of his second year. And, you know, you're just not losing a year or two of trying to develop the guy like you might be with a 19-year-old. And, you know, some 19-year-olds are a little mellow ball, and they come out, and they're already exceptional NBA players, and that's just that. But that is not the vast majority of 19-year-olds, and certainly not the vast majority of 19-year-old point guards. So Mitchell, you know, being someone who's already got a very clearly developed game and role You know, it's harder to see him, I mean, it's harder to see him flaming out just because of what his game is, but it's also harder to see him flaming out in the sense of you've already got a lot of what you're going to get, right, in the sense of he's already had a lot of development at Baylor and grown a lot as a shooter and playmaker, and he's certainly a defensive presence. I mean, I don't know. I think that I would struggle with him going to, like, a top-five team, but I think right about nine where you put him, it sort of sounds high the first time I hear it. But when I think about it some more, it's like, yeah, you know, that actually sounds about right.
1: And and that that's an important point to make because it, it, it is team specific, you know, say you're Oklahoma City or something and you're looking to do this huge teardown and develop young guys and, you know, say they fall to the back half of the lottery or something. I'm if I'm them, I'm probably not taking Davion Mitchell because it doesn't his timeline doesn't make any sense. Instead, I'm probably going to take that 19 year old who, you know, isn't quite the same level of player right now, but could be a home run swing, you know, four or five years from now. But say I'm New Orleans or Indiana or Golden State or San Antonio, you know, in that back half of the lottery, I'm I'm looking at Davion Mitchell and, you know, I I see a guy who's, you know going to be 23 by the start of the season and he's going to be able to step in and contribute right away i don't want another 19 year old project to come in with my veterans who are looking to win right away and cater to him and wait for him to finally to hopefully eventually catch up when i could have a guy who can help me win right now with his high level play on both ends
0: Another slightly older player who excelled for Baylor during the tournament, Jared Butler, who probably played the best of any of the Baylor guys in that tournament game. He was the first player to put up 20 points and seven assists in the title game since Carmelo Anthony, which, (laughs) you know, wild to think about. Basically two decades ago was the last time someone had a performance like that in the championship game. But Butler's been solid for Baylor throughout the tournament and throughout the season. He, again, like Mitchell, has gotten to an absurd level with his three point shooting. And he's someone who maybe would have fallen out of the first round before the tournament run. And now I don't think he's quite a lottery prospect at this point. But I mean, he is clearly, I think, at this point, going to go in the first round and probably sooner than I think he will, honestly. I I have him, uh, currently at like twenty one, um,
1: so a, a a few steps down from Davion, and mostly that's just based on athleticism and kind of point of attack defense. I I love Butler's game. I think he's a really smart player. I think he's a good defender and excellent shooter. Um, I I'm just not completely sold on the frame, and. I worry about his at-room finishing he has a nice floater but you know that that shouldn't be a relied on uh weapon necessarily but he's another one of these guys where a really smart team's gonna pick him up plug him right into the rotation and he's gonna fit in pretty seamlessly because of how smart he is and just how he just executes everything at an extremely high level
0: so before we get to the next segment, there is one Final Four team that we have not discussed so far in terms of prospects, so I did want to close out here by talking quickly about Quentin Grimes, who played for the University of Houston, and he was a big-name, top-10 prospect coming out of high school, went to Kansas, and let's just say he struggled during his loan year at Kansas, but... He transferred to Houston, had an all-right season last year, and then this year he's really taken it up another level, and the big point for him is going to be the shooting. So last season, he shot about four three-pointers a game and made a little under 33% of them. He also shot 66% from the foul line, and... This year, he shot a little over eight three-point attempts a game and knocked down 40% of them and also knocked down 39% of his threes in the tournament. And moreover, his free throw percentage also shot up to 79%. So those numbers alone sort of indicate that he's much more comfortable with his shot and particularly his outside shot than he had been previously just Looking at the shot, it looks a little smoother than it did certainly during his year at Kansas. And really, I think that's going to be the swing for him of whether or not he ends up going back on draft boards. It'll be interesting to see whether or not he comes out this year. He has, I believe, two more years of eligibility given the extra year of eligibility given to all college athletes this year because of COVID-19. But I think that if he comes back to Houston and has another really solid season next year, that he could definitely put himself on draft boards after it seemed like he was probably not going to get drafted after that really tough stretch at Kansas.
1: His reclamation story has been just awesome because and his freshman year at Kansas, that first game, I forget who they're playing, it might have been Michigan State, um, and he just came out and lit the world on fire with his shooting and ever since that game just had a really really rough season and i i was super high on him and it just wasn't working out and just one of these kids who keeps working at his game and working hard and finds a program where he fits and can connect to the coaches and the other players and it boosts his confidence and he gets back to the player that we all kind of expected him to develop into and just another case of hey not not all these guys develop on the same timeline and some guys take a little longer than others but i i currently have a a late second round grade on grimes i just really like his feel for the game i think he's a better playmaker than he gets credit for i think he's a really good defender um especially on ball defender and I think the shooting improvements are legitimate. I don't expect him to be a lights-out shooter. I don't expect him to be, you know, leading the league or, you know, mid to high 40% from three or anything. But I expect him to be reliable and to have the ability to attack closeouts and create a little off-the-bounce and knock down mid-range jumpers. So if I'm looking looking for more of a mature guard, in the second round, I I think Grimes is a really intriguing way to go.
0: So before we wrap up here, I just wanted to talk about some of the international prospects on the board for the 2021 draft. And it's certainly a less loaded international class than it has been in previous years. Part of that is because Jalen Green and Jonathan Kuminga went to the G League instead of, say, to the NBL. But there are a couple of international prospects that I did really want to talk through with you, and the first one that I wanted to talk about is going to be one that we argue about, which is, I know that you're lower on Alperin Sengun than pretty much anyone, and I'm certainly not anywhere near as low on him as you are, so... State your case, Tyler. Tell me why Aparn Sangoon is not even worthy of a second-round pick, and is going to be the worst player in the NBA and never play more than five minutes a game.
1: That's what you think, right? Well, I'm glad we're not. I'm not. I'm glad we're not using hyperbole or anything here. No,
0: not at all. Not even a little bit.
1: Uh huh. <laughs> okay, so I, I currently have him sitting at 37. But how how tall is this dude? Because. The first time I checked, he was, he was listed at 6'9". Then I've seen other places, he's at 6'11". Those are two very different heights for an immobile rim protector. So if he's closer to 6'11", or closer to 7 feet, I like him a lot more. Because um, I think at 6'9", I don't think he has the size or athleticism to be, you know, who he's been in Turkey, because if he's closer to seven feet, then I, I think that completely changes, um, kind of how I view him because he's a really good shot blocker because it's just a natural sense of timing, um, on when to contest. Really, really good post finisher. Um, flash is a good passing, but, not he can't really do anything from the perimeter on either end uh when he's put into the pick and roll he's pretty lost and his positioning there is and he just gets caught in no man's land where he's too hot his levels are too high to you know content to deter the roll man at all but he's not high enough to really affect the ball handler and he's just out there in this empty pocket by himself and he can't shoot at all so if he's 6'9 and an unathletic 6'9 I don't think he does much but if he's you know 6'11 close or coming up on seven feet then that lack of mobility can be a little more like you know you can forgive that a little more because you're not going to rely or expect him to get pulled out of the post because his size will be good enough um, where he can
0: be more of a rim deterrent. So I want to push back on a couple things there. First of all, the shooting. I don't think it's that he can't shoot. I think it's more that he just hasn't shot all that much. But I mean, he's shooting 81% from the free throw line. And, you know, on the rare jumpers that he does take, I think his form looks fine. He's got a pretty quick release for a big man. You know, again, this is relative terms, but... It's very easy for me to see him developing a longer range shot over time. And that sort of feeds into the height thing where, you know, if he's a Dwight Howard 6'11", aka really 6'9", you know, he's probably going to be playing purely center. If he's like 6'7", listed at 6'9", which would be the Dwight Howard version of 6'9", rather than, you know, pretending to be 6'11", you know, he's probably going to be pushed into being more of a stretch four type. And he doesn't have that in his game yet, but I think that's very projectable for him. And he's got really solid passing vision for a big man. He's absolutely mauling people on the offensive glass to the point where, yes, he's not going to be dealing with players who are that small most of the time in the NBA, But, I mean, when you're averaging four offensive rebounds in 28 minutes a game, like, that's something that's going to translate to some degree. It's just a matter of to what degree does it translate. And if Sengun goes, like, end of the first round to, let's say, the Milwaukee Bucks, I think would be a great fit for him, where he's playing all of his minutes alongside either Giannis or Brook Lopez. And... You know, he's basically just asked to do what he does well and fit into that team. You know, the defensive structure around him is going to be much better to the point where his admitted likely struggles on that end will be mitigated by having, you know, rim protectors around him. I don't know. I just find it very difficult to see him not finding a role in the NBA. And, you know, when you're talking about end of the first round guys, you know, There's a significant portion of end of the first round players who play, you know, not that many games in the NBA before they sort of flame out of the league. I would be genuinely shocked if Sengun can't play in the NBA at all. It's just a matter of how high he can go. And, you know, when you're a 19 year old who's the best player in one of the best professional leagues in the world, it's hard for me to sort of put too high of a ceiling on him You know, maybe it seems like his ceiling would be pretty low given his lack of athleticism at 6'9", ish, but he's found a way to succeed as a 19-year-old playing against professionals. It's hard for me to see a world in which he doesn't at least find some NBA niche to succeed, and I think that it's entirely possible that he ends up turning himself into, you know, a starter-type player, which if you can get that kind of player at the end of the first round, that's a home run.
1: So I I agree that
0: he's he's really really skilled
1: and what he's done this season is really impressive, um, in terms of the rebounding, um, I I like his re- instincts on that end, but again I I it kind of goes back to I don't know how tall this dude is because he looks bigger than everyone he's playing against and if he is that six nine that he was that I saw him listed at, then these dudes that he's playing against are tiny. But if he's closer to seven feet, again, that that changes things a little. As far as the shooting, I mean, Hunter Dickinson was a 74% free throw shooter with a pretty quality looking free throw mechanics. Do you ever expect him to be able to knock down threes?
0: Eh. Yeah, so no. I I would say I think that it's a bit unfair to compare Sangoon to him just because, you know, Sangoon has shown at least some level of proficiency in shooting. I don't know. I feel like that's unfair, but I also get where you're coming from, which is not a good sign. The the,
1: the, the broader point is that, the, the broader point there was that I, I think the free throw aspects get overblown. I, I do think that free throw percentage can be a quality indicator for a lot of guys. You know, going back to Davion Mitchell, he shot... F- near 46 percent from three this year in a variety of ways and still only 65 percent from the line you know i i i don't think that I, I i think people leaning on and not just you this is all across nba twitter or draft twitter is oh well this guy shot 80 percent from the free throw line he's obviously going to be a good shooter i don't think that always translates and just leaning on that isn't a good sign for me and I, I think it it's a crutch that gets overused if he's shooting you know mid to high 70s from the free throw line and taking three-pointers and they're just not falling that's different but he just hasn't even been willing and maybe that's coaching scheme I I don't know I'm not in those huddles I'm not on that sideline so I don't know if they're just telling him hey plant your butt in the post and we're gonna operate from there so if it's that you know I I more than happy to be wrong on this i just don't see his shot developing in the next couple of years um but i'm also not saying that he's never going to have a role in the nba because he is super skilled and his instincts on both ends are impressive so i'm pr- i'm probably leaning or being too harsh based on what my you know my confusion on how tall this dude is um and if he is if it is that Maybe I should just assume that he is that closer to seven feet tall. And, you know, th- that'll probably bump him up a bit for me.
0: That's a fair point, Read the free throws. I think the reason that I tend to lean on free throw shooting for prospects is when you're talking about, especially, you know, smaller sample size of 30-ish games in a Turkish League season or 40-ish games in a college season is you just get really small sample size issues with three-point shooting. For sure. I mean, Derek Williams had one year where he shot 40% from three and ended up being the number two overall pick because of it. And it turned out that he just got really hot from three-point range that year and wasn't actually that kind of shooter. So the reason that I tend to lean on free throw shooting for these kinds of things is because, you know, you're just going to have a larger sample size, right? I could say Sangoon shot four for 20 from three-point range, which is what he shot. And, you know, okay, if he shot eight for 20, does that mean he's a good three-point shooter? No, but if he's making 133 of 165 free throws, that's like, okay, I can see over that larger sample size that he's someone who can at least knock down shots from about 15 feet out. You know, that gives me more reason for optimism than, say, he got lucky and hit like 10 for 14 threes in one game, and other than that, he shot like 25% on the season.
1: Yeah, and that that that's totally fair, just from what i've seen it just the 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 unwillingness to really even look at the rim from outside from what i've seen um you know m- maybe i just i've looked at the wrong games for him um just that lack of confidence and again could be coaching but just i i think it will be more of a process for him to be a reliable outside shooter um, you know, reliable as in mid-30s, than just assuming that, oh, he can knock down a 15-footer and his free throw percentage is good, he, we, you know, we'll, we'll take a few steps back and, you know, easy peasy.
0: Well, let's sort of look now at pretty much the opposite example of that in Usman Garuba, Oof. who it's very clear to see his defensive place in the NBA, but man, if you could merge Sengun and Garuba into one player, that dude would be like in the Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic tier of unstoppable centers. But given the two players that we actually have, uh, yeah, very, very different stories on opposite sides of the ball for Garuba and Sengun.
1: Yeah, so if you're appalled with my... Singun ranking, I mean, I have Garuba even lower, which I know is almost the polar opposite of everyone else in the world. Um, I, I love his athleticism. I love his work rate. Like you mentioned, his defense is incredible. He, just whenever he dribbles the ball, he looks like a toddler dribbling for the first time. And he looks so uncomfortable. He looks like he has zero confidence with the ball. I don't trust, you know, I I think he's had a little bit of success, shooting from the corners i don't i think that's fool's gold i don't expect that to translate at all um just his overall ball skills are so far behind where they should be and you know he's he's just one of these guys where it, he seems more athlete than ball player
0: yeah, we are on opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of our thoughts on Sengun. We are not on the opposite side in terms of our thoughts on Garuba. I think that it will be a real struggle for a team that picks him in the first round. I've seen him as high as 15 in some places, and I would be very, very scared if my team was taking Usman Garuba anywhere in the top 25 or 30 which, you know, is a little bit different than, I think, the general consensus. But I am very much with you on Garuba there.
1: And, you know, maybe that team has elite shooting and they're able to kind of play him as a small ball center and he doesn't have to do anything except set screens and attack the offensive glass or lobs. And, you know, maybe in that role, he's a lot more valuable. um, But, oof, I'm just... He's one of those guys where if he would seem really easy to scheme around defensively.
0: It's funny because I mentioned the Bucks as a potential really good fit for Sengun, but I think they could be a very good fit for Garuba as well. Basically tell him... You're going to play the P.J. Tucker role. And even if we don't really trust the corner three-point shooting, that's just all you're going to do. And if they don't go in, okay, we'll deal with that when it comes. But you're on the floor to play defense and be the next P.J. Tucker and do nothing else. I think he could do really well in that role. But it's just that I don't see many other places where that would really work out. And if that's kind of the conversation you're having about a prospect, then they probably shouldn't go in the top half of the first round
1: it's sorry I, I i'm not sure that pj tucker's the right comp but i think the nasa's onto takumbo might be you know a, a better one for one because i i well and maybe i would just even lower on garuba than you are but I, I just think he would be out there as kind of just hey go be your athletic freakish self and go be a chaos agent and cause turnovers force miss shots run in transition and give us you know just ten minutes of hell out there, and I don't know i'm I'm just way lower people who have them in the top twenty i i I just struggle to really wrap my mind around that
0: all right, and now we're going to wrap up by talking about a prospect who is wildly different from both of the other two players that we've just discussed, even though he's in about the same six eight six nine height range. Josh giddy has been rocketing up draft boards oh he's so good. It's funny because, you know, he started the year as like a second round guy. And I'll admit, I had not seen any of his tape from before the season. So I was like, OK, uh, sure, why not? And then you just watch him play in the NBL. And it's like he's making the kinds of passes that, you know, you would expect to see from only the top ranked point guard prospects. His vision is incredible and More than that, you know, he can pass on the move as well. It's not just that, you know, he's making hit head passes or, you know, making the hockey assist type passes. He's got a whole lot of different passes in his bag. And I don't know. I mean, I think lottery is way too high for him, but he's probably going to go somewhere in the teens. And I don't hate it, honestly. In fact, not only do I not hate it, I think it'll be really fun to watch him play for a... You know, lower tier playoff team because that's probably gonna be right about the range that he goes in the first round.
1: So I've moved him up to fourteen. I I I know last time we talked about him, I was quite a bit lower on him, but they they've had a series of games since then, and he he's been so much fun. And like you said, his playmaking is incredible. Um, If you just watch him pass, you won't be able to tell what his dominant hand is, and he's hitting live dribble skip passes with both hands uh incredible size for that primary playmaker Um, and i think the shooting improvements that he's shown they've been subtle but meaningful where it's not a complete overhaul of his shooting mechanics but more of a refinement of little things that's making him you know a little bit better day by day and he's I'd, I'd be surprised if he ever turns into, like, a legitimate knockdown shooter, but I think he'll be good enough where when defenders go under screens, he can make them pay. When, you know, off-ball defenders leave him in the corner or, or on the wing, you know, he can make them pay. He's not going to be a liability as a shooter, but it's also not going to be a skill that he's dependent on, so it really won't drastically change His outlook in the
0: NBA, I don't think. And the thing about his size is that it makes him so much more versatile, just in the sense that you can play him with so many different types of players. And, you know, the easiest sort of comp here in terms of that, and I don't really mean to compare them, but if you think about Luka Doncic as a 6'7, 6'8 primary creator type who isn't so awful on defense that you can't put him out there. I mean, he's Luka Doncic, right? You're going to put him out there no matter what. But the point that I'm trying to get to with that is, you know, you can put Jalen Brunson, a 6'2 guard who really attacks the rim well and scores well around the basket. You can put him alongside Giddy. You can put a Pat Bev 6'1 defensive bulldog kind of player alongside him. You can put, you know... Devonte Graham and Terry Rozier alongside him, right, two 6'2 guys who can really score. And certainly in Rozier's case this year has really developed a three-point shot. I mean, there are so many different players that you could theoretically put alongside someone like Giddy at 6'8 with point guard type passing vision. You know, it just makes it so much easier to sort of conceive of his fit in the NBA, you know, Whereas if you're talking about say Sharif Cooper, who was about in that range the last time we talked, you know, you really have to put a defensive guard with size alongside Cooper. Whereas with Giddy, even if he's going to struggle on the defensive end, you know, you can just sort of throw him on the weakest opposing offensive player, pretty much regardless of their size, and that's huge when you're talking about that kind of offense first playmaker.
1: And when when you watch him for five minutes you can immediately picture him in an nba lineup and on an nba floor and guys like that when it comes to the draft are are just so much fun to you know scout and theorize of oh, what if he was on this team or what if he went here and what could his impact be with these guys and it, it's just it's exciting to watch him play and during his own season make you know meaningful improvements uh w- w- which is pretty rare for young players.
0: All right, anything else you want to cover here before we wrap up?
1: Uh had a Jaden McDaniel's piece come out today. Go read that on Kanye Uh some scouting reports for dra- these draft guys should be coming out soonish and an updated top 70, maybe top 80 if I can not be decisive enough on top 75 of the draft guide should be coming out in the next week or so uh, but yeah that's about it top 77.2 yeah exactly
0: <laughs> all right well he is tyler metcalf you can find his work on hashtag basketball as well as canis Hoopis. he mentioned the jaden mcdaniels article be sure to check that out you can find him on twitter at tmetcalf one You can also find my work on the Hashtag Basketball website, and you can find my other work, mostly for Nets Republic, on my Twitter as well, at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using, and if you have any feedback on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me as well, either via Twitter or my email address is in my Twitter bio. And as always, thanks so much for listening.